escaped sapiens. Despite our resource wealth and billions spent each year on pharmaceuticals, rates of depression and anxiety are on the rise in the West. It's natural to wonder what impact our modern, sedentary and two-order lifestyles might be having on brain development and neural function. In this episode of the Escape Sapiens podcast, I speak with Kelly Lambert, who is a behavioral neuroscientist working at the University of Richmond in Virginia, the United States. Kelly uses animal models to investigate the impact that our experiences and environmental context might be having on our own cognitive function. Her findings appear to have some remarkable implications concerning the impact that behavior might be able to have in sculpting improved mental resilience, reduced stress, and improved cognitive function. I hope you enjoy hearing what she has to say. There are some aspects of your research that appear really quite fun, and I want to get into talking about how you train mice to drive cars and chase after Fruit Loops and all that. But on the other side, you know, there's an undercurrent uh, to your research, which is really uh, quite serious and real, um, that has to do with mental health and uh, depression and, and, and that side of things. And so I was hoping, if possible, to start off by asking you a few questions in that direction before jumping into some of the more uh, sure. fun, fun stuff. Um, so the th first thing I wanted to ask you about is, is it really the case that in the West today, we're seeing an, uh, an increase in, in the number of, uh, you know, in, in cases of mental health problems and depression and this sort of thing? And, and if, if so, why is that? Is it, is it because we're outsourcing manual labor overseas or um, is, it, is it because we're spending more time in front of the computer screen? You know, do, you, do you have some sort of idea of why that is? Lots of thoughts about it. And, and yes, you're correct that for at least some psychiatric illnesses, well, most psychiatric illnesses, such as depression, the rates are increasing. Um, now, it could be that maybe more people are aware and reporting this. But when we look at other medical conditions, such as cancer, HIV, uh, cardiovascular disease, the rates of death due to those diseases, at least in the United States, uh, and Tom Ensel, the past uh, former uh, director of the National Institutes of Health here in the U.S., had reported this, those deaths are going down, suggesting that we're getting better at treating this. So all the research, our knowledge, our um, biomedical knowledge base is increasing our our conditions with that, uh, the outcomes. Psychiatric illness is just in another category. It's, it's not decreasing and in many cases increasing. And I know that we're all dealing with this huge stressor right now with COVID. And our uh, Center for Disease Control here, their, their recent surveys of looking at not only depression, but the number of young adults who have reported having ideation of, of suicide during this pandemic is alarmingly and disturbingly, any, any rate of it is, is, is uh, disturbing, but it's very, very high. Um, so yes, we do seem to be in a situation where other medical illnesses uh, are getting better due to our research and, and information, but psychiatric illness depression, schizophrenia, obsessive compulsive disorder, anxiety disorders, not so much. So your question is why? We have all these wonderful smart people in psychiatry and neuroscience and biomedical research. Um, that's a good question. Um, one question, I know that you're gonna ask me about rats, so, and I'm 
perfectly happy to be critical of my own field and our own work. And I think we need to look at, look at what we do with a critical eye because at one level we want, you know, we're doing this uh, for models to try to improve conditions for humans. We want basic information about life in general as well. But when we're looking at translational research, so from our rodent models, and I work mostly with rats, to trying to figure out causes of mental illness um, that fits in the psychiatric illness category like depression, where are we going wrong? Uh, so we're, we're doing a lot of research with these rodent models, but um, I, I think that we're limited by keeping animal, well, we, we need control in the laboratory. So we keep it with proper care of animals, but they're in a very kind of predictable, standard, mm -hmm. safe environment. Rats, animals didn't evolve to be in that predictable, safe, never ending, uh, resources always dropping from the sky kind of environment. Um, so if we're looking at a brain and a brain, you know, we're not, we're not born with the brain, we're looking at humans, with the brain that we have now, we have the brain that has been carved and sculpted and engineered by our experiences. So if you limit our experiences, then you've limited the brain. Same thing for these animals. If you limit, you know, surprise predator uh, exposure or this new thing or a thunderstorm, you know, all the things that come with the wild. Um, if you limit all that, then I think we're not only looking at a simpler model than a human, but not even an authentic animal mo rodent model. And, and that's, you know, that's something for me to say. I've been in this business more than three decades and I've learned a lot from rodent research. I wrote a whole book, The Lab Rat Chronicles, about their wisdom and, um, and, and we need that control for some of our techniques. But I think that that has limited us. And what we see in the lab in this very limited situation, um, standard control is not translating um, to humans and humans um, you know we have a very impressive brain um, and we can talk about differences in brains between uh, humans and rodents and other animals um, so that aspect of the research we're trying to um, uncover information from our wonderful laboratory you know our our controlled systematic laboratory research in some ways may be limiting the outcomes uh, because of the behavior part so i think we really need to respect the environment i i'm i work at an undergraduate institution so i work with undergraduates a good bit and i'm always in class talking about context matters so it's not just having a brain but it's that environment that we put our brains in that is also incredibly important so I think the research on one end has been an issue. I think that we've been limited and maybe a little, sh well, just limited um, in our toolbox as well. We get real excited about drugs, uh, a pharmacological uh, way to treat um, mental illness, psychiatric illness, and for good reason. Um, going back just the middle of the last century, we were still you know, putting people in horrible institutions and people were getting frontal lobotomies and the treatments were horrible. So the idea that you can change our neurochemistry by taking a pill, I mean, it was just wonderful. We wanted to be able to do that for 
our loved ones. And for some conditions that seems to be working okay, but um, we've got a multi-billion dollar pharmaceutical you know, industry for mental health. And I just said that our numbers for depression are not getting better. We've got antidepressants everywhere. So I think that, that we've gotten very excited and we've just stayed on that track. And I've, um, you know, just to kind of make this more noticeable, I've made up this word behavior-suticals instead of pharmaceuticals. And that's the idea that we can change our chemistry, neurochemistry, dopamine and serotonin and adrenaline and such, noradrenaline, um, through behavior and through emotional, you know, uh, situations in ways just as we could, you know, that may be more, I think, more authentic and, and maybe more relevant than changing our neurochemistry with a pill because we really haven't shown, like with depression, uh, there's most of the literature is about serotonin. We know that more neurochemicals are involved. But drugs are your standard off-the-shelf kind of antidepressant is going to increase the activity of the serotonin, this neurochemical, in some way. So we thought, or others thought, that, oh, well, we must have people who are depressed must have a deficit of serotonin. So let's do something to increase serotonin pharmacologically, and we'll solve that problem. But we never have really shown in a very definitive way that people with depression have low serotonin levels. They're not going in and getting some, and we don't even have the technology to be able to do this in, in a you know, way with the public and living brains. Um, they're going you know, many times into a general practitioner saying, oh, I saw the commercial about the symptoms, I have this, and they're, very, they're in pain, and, and, and then they write a prescription. There's no, if someone has diabetes, the doctor just doesn't write a prescription for insulin. Uh, they're going to do blood tests and look at biomarkers. And so we don't have easy access to biomarkers. So we've assumed, and this is a, you know, it's, it's faulty reasoning to think that a correlation is causation is what we teach yeah. our students in the seventh grade, right? So, um, or this indirect way to, you know, that indirectly this is serotonin is being increased but it doesn't mean that, in, that increasing serotonin is the cause. I may have a cold and my gram, eat my grandmother's chicken noodle soup and I feel better, but that doesn't mean I had a chicken noodle soup deficit. <laughs> uh, there's something about that that is doing something mm -hmm. that may be making me feel better. So it, mean, it means that we needed to be, we still need to be more, you know, better brain detectives about, okay, why are these antidepressants working for some and not others, and why are we not seeing overall better outcomes when we're relying on the drugs? So everything's complicated. We need to take that knowledge that we know about the pharmaceuticals and, and still respect more behavioral cognitive therapies, which have very high efficacy rates. Um, it's not as easy as taking a pill. You know, we'd, like, we'd love to have a pill to lose weight, you know, nobody wants to have to exercise and eat the right things and diet. Our, you know, our brain's kind of the same way. We probably need the hard work with that um, to change the neurochemistry in healthy ways. And so maybe we could add behavioraceuticals to the pharmaceuticals and maybe start with behavioraceuticals when we can. Um, so a limited toolbox, 
uh, limited research opportunities with these models, I think is contributing to it in a different way than we're seeing with other medical conditions. Mm -hmm. This is one thing I wanted to ask you about. So when we're dealing, when we're trying to address um, depression with pharmaceuticals, is the model then that there's only one type of depression? Uh, or, or do we know there are multiple different types of depression that uh, correspond to different chemistries in the brain? Well, there's certainly um, you know, bipolar um, emotional disorders, bipolar depression which seems to be very different than what we call this unipolar or major depression. Um, and then there are different degrees, Shane, of um, you know, milder depression uh, leading to depression that may be um, associated with the suicidal ideation or death by suicide. So there's certainly those degrees, but there, there's not a, a, you know, sensitivity of, you know, even seeing that someone has a deficit of serotonin, um, even, and so we certainly don't have, well, you have mild depression, this, then let's give you, I mean, there are different drugs that are involved, but we haven't really been able to be that, that sensitive about, um, okay, this, this particular cocktail or drug is going to be best. A lot of times, because the drugs are different in some ways, and I, I should state that I am not a clinician, so I need to be very careful. I'm talking to you about my research being mm -hmm. a behavioral neuroscientist working with animal models. Mm -hmm. um, but a drug would be tried at a certain dose, and then when that doesn't seem to be working, then another dose is tried, or another drug, or another combination. Um, it seems to be more hit and miss than we should Which be seems quite dangerous with. when you're dealing with suicide as well. And, and yeah, I, I think it is. I try to, you know, I'm not saying at all that people who are um, taking any type of medication should stop. I'm not saying that because if you've been taking medication, your brain has adapted to that. That's part of the wonder of neuroplasticity. Mm -hmm. And so the last thing you want to do is stop. Uh, so if you've been taking a drug, your drug, your, uh, brain has adapted to having more of that, so it may have cut back and compensated for something. So if you just automatically stop taking it, you're going to be disrupted. Um, so, but it is important to you know, try to understand what's been done, to ask questions to your doc to doctors. And, um, and there could be some real danger to being too dependent on, you know, disrupting natural neurochemistry with pharmaceutical agents for long periods of time. When does our brain stop knowing when to produce certain mm -hmm. neurochemicals and to change? Uh, and are we just kind of in this chemical, I don't want to be too dramatic, but a chemical cage of being dependent on taking these drugs mm -hmm. to feel normal or average. And we're not talking about addictive drugs, you know, for other uh, emotional outcomes, recreational drugs and such that can be very addictive. Um, but some of the you know, medicinal drugs can be too, because your brain adapts. Um, well, not that it's medicinal with alcoholism, but uh, people who consume alcohol, uh, that's um, a suppressant, GABA kind of uh, suppresses activity. So your brain compensates because it doesn't want to be suppressed all the time. So it's going to compensate by um, you know, gearing up some of the more excitatory neurotransmitters. So if that person stops drinking alcohol and, and the brain is addicted and used to the alcohol, 
that person's going to be feel fidgety and mm -hmm. nervous. Um, and it can actually be quite dangerous as well, right? Coming off alcohol. Yes. yes. And there could be drugs that are excitatory, that you, the compensatory is the other way. And so overdoses or people who take drugs outside of the context that they're used to, their body may not compensate in certain ways. And so a dose that was perfectly fine in this context could be an overdose and lethal in another context or combined. Mm -hmm. So you're right. Uh, uh, pharmaceutical agents of any kind should be taken very seriously. And mm -hmm. I think that maybe we've become too dependent in the psychiatric realm on that, uh, even though our neurochemistry is very important to our functioning. So I'm not trying to downplay the role of the mm -hmm. neurochemistry, but we can certainly change our neurochemistry through behavior, through motions, through cognitive processes as well. So that should still, I think, be on the table and be mm -hmm. an option. No, so, so yeah, that, I, that was one of the things that excited me about your research. So you're looking at alternative ways uh, to address some of these problems that we have. Uh, can I ask, um, you know, you're dealing with animal models in particular, you're working with rats and looking at how behavior will affect their, their stress levels and anxiety and, and this sort of thing. How, how good are rats as a model for, for humans? Uh, you, you know, you, you mentioned that the, they have very similar brains, they're smaller. Um, but for example, are, are the neurons the same? Is, is the chemistry the same? Yeah, great question. And my thoughts are evolving a bit over the last couple of years. So for the longest, I've said, and I still believe that a rat is a very good model um, for a rat brain for the beginning stages of research. So what you're asking, neurons or the cells in the brain look exactly the same. Um, if, if I've down the hall in my lab, if someone puts up a, um, puts a slide with a human neuron under the microscope or a rat, if I don't know the content or I can't see the size of the um, slide, I don't know the difference. So the, the structure of the neurons and the glial cells, the supportive cells are the same. Generally, we have all the same brain areas, a cortex, a hippocampus, a cerebellum, an amygdala. Um, uh, neurochemicals are the same. We share a lot of neurochemistry with plants even. So there's been a lot of you know, conservation. Um, with uh, through uh, about with neurochemical with chemicals um, throughout evolution um, rats i'll be the first to say they're very complex in their behavior they teach me things all the time um, i'm learning from them so just like other um, biomedical researchers may start by looking at cells in a petri dish to understand how cancer cells may react in a human body um, this is certainly a great model. We have an intact brain with all the neurochemicals and behavior. That's a great place to start. But um, human, the human brain is very different quantitatively and maybe qualitatively. We're, we're still you know, on a continuum with evolution, but the, it's a numbers game. Mm -hmm. So um, one of my colleagues, uh, Susanna Herculana Huzel, uh, who is at um, Vanderbilt, she, but most of her, her career was in Brazil, where she's from. So she came up with this wonderful technique, um, innovative technique to study, to count neurons. So these are how many cells do we have in our brain? So let's look at the human brain now. So um, if you went to movies and such, there's a you know, hundred billion neurons are in the human brain and you kind of 
um, okay, I'm not going to count 100 billion. How do we even kind of know 100 billion? And it's a sampling, you know, they would take tissue and, and count. And um, so Susanna is wonderful. She was working actually for a science museum in Brazil, and she wanted to have some of these fact sheets. And being a good scientist, she wanted to go back and check the literature. Okay, who, how do we know that humans have 100 billion? Because we know that we can't really count all that. And it was kind of like, you know, street lore or a folk wisdom or something it was informed but no one had really there wasn't an, a, a definitive original uh, reference it's kind of pat even in textbooks well this textbook said it and this textbook said it and I, I write textbooks myself so I know it's hard to track down all this but it was when I was writing a textbook that I, I needed to find out um, and so she came up with this way of homogenizing so so the challenge with counting cells is there are different density of neurons in different areas of the brain. So you just can't go, oh, the brain weight of this, let's extrapolate. Um, you need to look at the density in different brain areas. So she pretty much had a blender of sorts uh, and she talks about making brain soup. And so you like take the outside area, the cortex or that back area hanging off the cerebellum and you mush it up, you make a soup and it has the cell bodies that are still intact. And so you, you add volume, you have the weight of your uh, brain, and then you add volume, and then you um, take a small uh, sample, and um, because they have dispensed, you know, an equal, uh, equal way, um, you can start to extrapolate in those different brain areas. Um, and she could do that with a small brain and, and really test, um, you know, validate this. So, when she used that, and that's called isotropic fractionation, uh, when she used that technique of homogenizing uh, and counting the cells in different brain areas and counting it up, um, so her estimate is 86 billion for okay. a human brain. And you might say, well, that's not so far off. Yeah, that's what you say. But 14 billion is an entire baboon brain. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know how much, what an error of, you know. So we just of, became dumber using <laughs> well, a blender. Yeah, if you define intelligence by number of neurons, I mean, we became more at maybe we came became dumber, but we became more accurate. And then, but using this technique to compare to other brains, we, I think we still okay. are impressive. So that that's the point I'm trying to make. So using this technique, she's looked at a lot of different um, species, and even though we don't have the largest brain, elephants, dolphins, and such have larger brains we have more neurons in that cortex, um, mm -hmm. the outer area. Um, we don't have more neurons than an elephant, but we have more neurons in that outer cortex. And um, primates uh, in general, when she works with the numbers, um, they scale at a different level than rats do. So if rats, going back to, you know, is rat a good model? If a rat, as rat or rodent brains get bigger, their neurons get bigger. Um, and so they don't densely pack, they don't change the density as fast as human primates, as the brains get bigger, the cells stay the same. So they're really increasing the density of neurons. So you'd have to, there's a big rodent called a capybara, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and even that it's, it's just sparse, more sparsely counted neurons. So, um, so there are a lot of ways to compare brains, but I think a rat has about 200 million 
neurons generally compared to our 86 billion. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when you look at a, a human, even more so than the other apes, orangutans and gorillas and chimps, we've got this really impressive number of cortical cortex neurons. And I know if you're kind of thinking about with Hamilton, they talk about the room where it happens, uh, that play here in the U.S. Um, the cortex is kind of the brain room where it happens. There's so much integ specialization, integration, um, fast projecting cells, you know, regulating our emotions. Um, so that's a difference between the, the human and the rat brain. And when because we have this processing potential, then you get into questions about, you know, memories and anxieties, the way that we have them. And, you know, we're, we don't have to be, uh, one of my favorite neuroscientists is uh, Robert Sapolsky. And he has this book, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, was one of his uh, early, really popular books. And um, Do they? Well, he, he <laughs> says they don't really. Uh, at the, the point is that zebras, they get really stressed out when that lion's chasing them. Mm -hmm. uh, and for good reason, and stress is a wonderful response in the short term. They're able to, you know, outrun, hopefully, the lion and such, and then the stress is over. But something that we've inherited with this fancy schmancy cortex and all the neurons is we don't have to be encountering stress to generate it. So we're perfectly happy to go, well, you know, sometimes even when things are going well, I'm thinking, oh, what am I missing? I'm not feeling nervous. Certainly, there should be something I'm worrying about. So, um, so we're, we generate this anxiety. We have ideation. We think about the future in good and bad ways that we probably are not replicating in a rat. And psychiatric illness, in many ways, is about you know delusions and anxieties and dread um, and the. Psychiatric illness may very much be, you know, somewhat, somewhat specific to the human brain. Um, stress is not, that's been conserved. We can study stress and learning abilities. And I think that what we're doing with those models is still very informative. We can do things to disentangle information and variables in ways we can't with the humans. Um, mm -hmm. But, so we've got a huge difference in numbers. So a lot has been conserved brain cells, brain areas, neurochemicals, basic design, universal design, and that's something that we're trying to look for. What are some of the universal designs um, of kind of behavioral neuroscience, the brain and, and behavioral outcomes? But there are these, the numbers difference. Um, there's another cell that we're looking at in the brain, uh, a shape of a, well, it's a type of cell that just in the last couple of years has come to, um, um, been on my radar, and that's called the von Economo neuron. And so this is a neuron that's very, it's a spindle, it's very skinny. Um, and it's in certain areas of the human brain, a one involved in emotions called the uh, anterior cingulate cortex, and another incredibly interesting area called the insula um, that is processing information about both our internal and external environment. So it's so important. And they're there. And at first we thought, oh, they're only in apes. And that's kind of what makes us special. But then we found them in pigs and horses and cows. And my new species that I'm just wild about and I think we can learn so much about is the raccoon. I don't know if you're 
Um, yeah, I used to live in Canada. They used to be in my roof, so I know what a yeah, raccoon is. And for <laughs> all the reasons people don't like them, I love them. They're problem solvers. They're persistent. They seem to have kind of this curiosity. So we've been looking at raccoon brains that we're inheriting from USDA or wherever when they have And they them. also have this complexity. And they have, uh, well, yeah, they have the von Economo neurons, at least in the insula. Uh, rats don't have them anywhere. I've looked and looked and no one has found them. Um, and the raccoons, um, and this is some work done with Susanna Herculana Huzel as well, their cortex profiles like the primate cortex. Um, so um, so there's the existence of von Economo neurons. Um, so there are some subtle, and also the cortex, um, if you look at our cortex, it has all these bulges and wrinkles and because we've got to put this flat sheet of tissue into this small head so that the females can give birth to this, you know, yeah. can be this flat. Um, so we've got all these wrinkles called gyri and sulci and the rat is just smooth as a baby's bottom. There's no, we call it gyrification, but the raccoon has this. So, so again, I think we can learn a lot from the rats, but we need to consider looking at some of their wild behavior, natural behaviors, and we need to look at different animal models. I mean, there's not going to be one animal model uh, that's going to be you know, the best, perfect, that we should hang our hats on. Um, today in biomedical research, the rat is gone, is the mouse, and the mouse is even has a simpler brain and behavior. And no offense to the, to the mice out there, <laughs> I've done some wonderful parenting work with uh, the California deer mouse and, and they're interesting and very um, mice are very interesting and survivors um, but the rat has a little bit more complex behavior um, I would say from my experience uh, with them so there are limitations to putting all of our eggs in the rodent basket for biomedical um, models they're very valuable but we need to realize the limitations of these and try to branch out to see where we can make a difference so much suffering going on in the world so despite the limitations uh with working with rats i still wanted to ask you about some of your research in that direction so mm -hmm. you you have some research where you're looking at the environments that rats are living in where you have you have to correct me if i'm wrong here but you have sort of country mice and city mice mm -hmm. and and these comparisons can, can you sort of explain you know how do those experiments work and you know what are you looking for right so um in my lab, I kind of describe what we're doing as looking at experience-based neuroplasticity. So neuroplasticity is this wonderful aspect of brains that allow them to change, what I say, from the womb to the tomb. So if our environment changes, our brains can change with them. So some simpler organisms, it's more reflexive. If the environment changes, they're toast. You know, they can't adapt to this. So back in the 1960s, I, here at, at Berkeley, um, University of California at Berkeley, there was a team of researchers who did some fascinating research on what we call enriched, or what they called enriched environments. So they were able to look out of the box or the lab box uh, where animals were kept in these streamlined, very clean, predictable environments and put them in a messier environment. They called it kind of a Disneyland where there were new, um, what we call stimuli or objects put in there every day. It was a larger, enclosure so they could had more physical movement they had more animals in there so like six to ten uh, with a larger space whereas a lot of research may have an animal just housed 
individually, isolate housed. Um, so uh, after only about a month, they noticed when they looked at the brain said there were more, um, there's more neuronal complexity, uh, such as for the existing neurons, there are more branches and neurons are wonderful in that way that they communicate with trill, you know, so, so many the actual, synapses. The actual morphology changes, not just the chemistry. Right. And so this is oh, wow. part of, you know, neuroplasticity could be the production of new neurons. That takes a lot of energy and that can happen. Or the neurons you have can make new connections. And so that's mm -hmm. very much a part of what our neuroplasticity as adults probably is more about making new connections and more, you know, faster connections and, and circuits that are building so they started to see some positive brain changes and that was considered an enriched environment. So in my lab, working with undergraduates and being interested in neuroplasticity and environments, we started to look again at that and um, we were asking, when we were looking at the protocols in the scientific literature, a lot of the stimuli, the enriched stimuli were kind of artificial mirrors and metal things and things from little happy meals from kids. Um, and they weren't very natural things. And so I thought, well, I don't know, does that make a difference? Is it just novelty or is it something about where, you know, this, this object came from? So we started to build what you're referring to these natural, what we call them natural enriched environments, which could be kind of like a country environment. So we would have um, sterilized dirt uh, that they could actually dig in as opposed to the more manufactured bedding. Um, Instead of a plastic ladder, we'd have a stick. Instead of uh, a little plastic cat ball, we would have a rock. Uh, so we would control for the function associated, potential function, and the number, uh, but we would have kind of an artificial and a more natural environment. And um, the person, Marion Diamond, who's one of my heroes, who was in that original four, uh, one of the first, unfortunately, there aren't a lot of women uh, in neuroscience that you're reading about in the 1960s. Um, but what I, she was still alive when I was uh, going through this. She passed away a couple of years ago. Um, and so I was able to interview her. Uh, I, I love interviewing people to <laughs> get that story because I was working on a, a book, a textbook or something. And um, I said, why all the artificial, did you ever look at natural? She said, yeah, we tried that. They had like a sandbox or something at Berkeley outside. And um, again, it's hard to control for things. And so they um, talked about it in a Scientific American article, I think in 1972 or something, they had the cover of Scientific American. And she mentioned that the animals that were outside in this more natural enriched environment had heavier brains or, or something like that, but it wasn't a systematically published. She didn't mention They didn't that. blend the brains though, or use any yeah, more, yeah. more modern techniques. <laughs> yeah. Um, or they didn't have a lot of animals in that. Mm -hmm. um, so, but she was encouraging to, to think about this. So we tried to bring nature to the lab instead of taking the animals outside. And um, so, Overall, and we're still, you know, every study, you know, we add to this, but overall, we think that regardless if it's the artificial city or the natural country, adding new things to the environment and having the ability to move and social inter social interaction is so rich, you know, you never know what this other animal is going to do. That seems to equal to be good for their cognitive. Well, the animals had similar cognitive abilities, learning abilities. 
But when we looked at their emotional responsiveness, like giving them a situation, uh, they don't love to swim, but um, they're great swimmers and they will swim in nature. But, um, you know, do look at their stress hormones when we expose them to a challenge task or something. Um, the, and the natural animals seem to be more what we call resilient, emotionally resilient. So their stress hormone. How do you profile. measure that? Yeah. So <laughs> one, one way is to look at stress hormones. So we have the stress hormone called cortisol. You may have heard about it. It's not great for it to mm -hmm. be high for long periods of time. We look at the rat version of that, a corticosterone. And then we've also been interested in this other, uh, so th that's released by our adrenal gland. I'm pointing to my kidney. <laughs> it sits yeah. on top of the kidney. Another adrenal steroid, um, DHEA, it has a long mm -hmm. name. It's also, th that's considered to be a buffer to cortisol or mm -hmm. corticosterone. Even in humans, some of our special operations soul study studies that have looked at highly trained um, soldiers and special mm -hmm. operations and such, they have a higher uh, level of DHEA, the more successful mm. and trained ones. So there, there's a good bit of research. So we like to look at this ratio because I think ratios are more informative. Than so if, if, you're, if, if your DHEA is higher, that means you can deal with stress better? Perhaps we think that it's less toxic. And so okay. we're able to look at that. You could look at it in the blood, but it's, it's you know, we don't like to, it's, it's hard to get blood from a rat and it's, you know, it's a stressor in itself. So we have a technique where we get it in their poop and they're perfectly happy to give us poop. Uh, so we can <laughs> assay uh, out these hormones from fecal matter mm -hmm. at any time. So you can look at it that way. You could look at certain receptors for stress hormones and such in um, the brain, but we've mostly been looking at those fecal related hormones and looking at behavior itself. Uh, so we're still looking at more sophisticated brain ratios or receptors and such. But we, d we think that something about that natural environment may be differentially influencing the stress response. And that's not a big surprise because even there's research with humans that, you know, a walk in nature can reduce stress hormones. And um, there's this wonderful study, correlational study in Denmark a few years ago people who grew up with green spaces outside or close to a park, or I forget how they measured it, shrubs in the front yard or close to a park or something, were like 50% less likely to be diagnosed with psychiatric illness as an adult. That's huge. If we had any drug that could reduce that way, it would be so, so great. So we know there's something about nature. I mean, our brains evolved in nature. Uh, yeah. So it's just interesting to be able to pick this apart a little bit in, in the lab. So it's enriched can take on a lot of different meanings. Um, we're kind of leaning more toward engaged. And if we're talking about lifestyles that are healthy, engaged, um, a wild rat who that is in nature, and we're starting to look at wild rats, it's not Disneyland. It's very stressful, um, mm -hmm. maybe like our lives. So, so we need to be careful when we say enriched environments are just like 
the wild. Uh, no, it, it's enriched out there. There's a lot going on. They have to be on their little tippy paw toes or whatever. But there's predators and poisons mm -hmm. and all types of things. You know, a rat in the wild probably is rare for it to live past a year, many mm -hmm. maybe not past six months. How long do they live in the lab conditions? Yeah. Two to two years, maybe three tops. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, That's pretty impressive. Yeah. The difference. Yeah. yeah. So, so if we're looking at really different animals, a wild natural animal and a lab animal that could contribute to what, to our findings. Uh, so it's just mm -hmm. something I think we need to be aware of. So it makes me wonder, you know, drawing lessons for, for ourselves, I'm some days I'm sitting in front of the computer two, three, four, ma many hours, right? And I, I'm, what am I doing to my brain? That's a <laughs> by, good question. We're, we're all in this experiment that I'm not sure we signed up, gave consent for, but we're we're doing it. I'm in that situation as well. Um, we've one of my areas of research that's kind of related to this. So I'll bring it up because I think it's related to what screens may be doing. Um, and trying to look at therapies that may not be pharmaceutical related and more behavioraceutical, we have uh, some research that we call uh, effort-based reward training. So mm -hmm. we're looking at animals that get their rewards, which is a, and my lab a fruit list, not very natural, is it? But they like fruit loop, this little sweet cereal. Um, do what we can. Um, <laughs> but they, they, we don't just give it to them. They put in a little arena that they're familiar with. And we teach them that if there's a mound of bedding, uh, that if they dig down with their little paws, they can get this fruit loop. So we're not talking about heavy duty work. It's you know, five minutes. There are piles that move every day and they go and they dig up this, this fruit loop. So I'm trying to build connections between effort and reward. And when you have connections between effort and reward, you know, maybe that increases a sense of control. I know how to get the fruit loop. It's not just random. Or this maybe more human word, self-efficacy. You know, I've got this. I've got have some control. So when we compare several measures of these effort-based reward trained, and it's contingency training. The reward is contingent on their effort to animals that we just give the reward to. So the contingent trained animal dug up three fruit loops. We would just give this control group three fruit loops. We put them in the arena, but there's no contingencies there. They just get it. So we call it the trust fund rats is what we call that. So they get the same number of rewards. They kind of have a similar experience, but we're not building these circuits. And so we, we also see emotional resilience in those effort-based reward um, animals. So, Having a sense of control and some, you know, our brains, most of our brains are built to move us around. I mean, we get all excited about this decision-making and intelligence and such, but that big part um, in the back of our brain called the cerebellum and humans, about 78% of that 86 billion neurons, they're in the cerebellum and that is involved in motor coordination and movement. Um, so healthy brains need to be moving and they need to have some sense of, you know, of control, self-efficacy. Mm. When we're sitting in front of a screen, I'm moving my hands, but I'm not traveling in any way. So my movement is limited. You know, it's just less engaging for the brain. If I was having a conversation with you, mm -hmm. it would be more, you know, in real person, it would be more mm -hmm. engaging. Of course. Um, yeah. 
so and also as our as our world you know just over the last hundred years has become more automated and westernized technologically advanced we've lost control of being able to change things um there's i, I when i was um stories of like the first cake mixes um didn't require you to do anything but add water but i think there's some controversy there's not scientific literature on this but there was some um uh, writings that um they figured out that if the bakers mostly women in those days if they had to add an egg if they had a little skin in the game they were more proud of it they had more of a sense of accomplishment and so when everything's automated and we're not moving around a lot and our senses are limited because it's just focused here. I don't think that's great for the brain. Um, I think we need to be mindful and at least have interest, you know, mittent, you know, add in nature or hobbies or things like that that can remind us, you know, the way our brains and bodies evolved. Um, that so, so a quick question with regards to this is, you know, in America, I'm not American, but in America, there's a huge prison population, right? So what, what's, what's that doing to those people? When you're locked away, you have zero control over what's going on. You're, you know, you get your meal every day. You, you have very limited input. Are we creating a situation where we have, we're going to have huge amounts of depression and, and uh, mental, are we generating mental problems in these populations? It's such a good question. And I've just reached out of my kind of comfort zone with animal models to write a collaborative grant proposal to look just at that prison okay. populations. Because based on everything I know about the brain and behavior and nervous systems, I think you've taken individuals who are vulnerable, who behavioral output and decision-making has not been great. And you've put them in the worst situation possible for that brain to improve. It's like putting someone with lung cancer into a highly polluted environment. Um, mm -hmm. There's value judgments about what people deserve. Um, I don't want to get into that, but if we want to rehabilitate, if we want mm -hmm. to be able to send someone back out into society to be a productive member and to be safe and not get into trouble again. The prison, the way that we see prison today, in my mind, is like those little stripped down impoverished environments of the rats in the lab. And if we're going to be concerned about that, we certainly need to be concerned about humans. And if you talk about or think about solitary confinement, uh, that has mm -hmm. to be just torture for a brain that I don't even know if a brain can recover completely uh, depending on how you know tense and chronic that is so you're right that I've been talking about neuroplasticity in more positive ways but um, our brain is changing when it's being when it's impoverished and we can talk about poverty and low socioeconomic status and such but I don't think it, that's the smartest way to try to rehabilitate a brain that's that's I'm certain about that and we need to be we need to look at that in more responsible ways and you're right the US is we're being the most irresponsible I think in many ways about that we could do better so in, so in the experiments that you're actually doing uh, when you have an enriched uh, natural environment 
or when you have uh, rats that are working for their Fruit Loops, <laughs> um, they they so you're saying they tend to have uh, greater cognitive abilities and and greater well, not not in terms of the environments, but uh, for the uh, for the working rats, they they have better cognitive abilities. Is that the case? Yes. Yeah, so for the working rats, when we um, so several studies, what we did with those is after we train them, and it takes about five to six weeks to train them. And a lot of times with rodent research, we don't love long train. We like to do something fast and then see what the outcome is. So after we've trained them with that task. If we give them a new task, like uh, one that I've written about and published, is this little cat ball where the the Fruit Loop is in this little ventilated plastic ball, and they can't they try to get it, but they can't reach through. Their little paws can't get in. And I love to see an animal, and even a student when they're taking you know trying to figure something out. I love to see it. So they'll kind of put it in their mouth and sling it against the wall of the cage to break it out, but nothing works. So. Um, occasionally they'll, they will figure it out, but, but for, we've tried to rat proof it where it can't be opened. And so what we found is that effort-based reward animals would persist longer before they gave mm -hmm. up. And there's a literature in psychology, which my training is in, called learned helplessness, uh, where it was originally done with Seligman and with dogs and rats, where there was something they couldn't escape from, like a mild this shock. This is the electroshock. Yeah. yeah. They would just give up. It was like, I can't, nothing. And that, that seems to be a perfect model for depression where you just give up no matter what I do is going to help. Could you maybe explain those experiments a little bit? Because I'm not really familiar with them. It, it, how does that tie into what, sorry, I'll, yeah. I'll let you go. Yeah, on. well, that, it does tie in. Um, so what they saw, they put uh, the original research 60s or 70s dogs were in a two compartment apparatus and um, there was a barrier and so they're in this one compartment with a barrier and there was a very light I think shock on the, the grid of the floor so it's uncomfortable for the dogs and usually a dog would try to get it get the heck out of there but they had the barriers high so that they couldn't jump out and so they did that a time or two and then they drop the barrier down and they did it again. And this time they were, the dog could jump out, but they saw that in about, I think 70% of them, they just kind of sat there and took it as if they had learned in the previous trials that no matter what they did, it wasn't going to change the outcome of the situation. And so they called that learned helplessness. And it seemed to be a very good model or way to think about depression. You don't get out of bed because no one's going to hire you. No one wants to be in a relationship with you. Um, that has an interesting outcome with Martin Seligman and toward you know, later on, he said he was giving a talk um, to psychiatrists and he said, you know, 70% of the animals are engaged or showing or exhibiting this learned helplessness. And someone asked the question, what about the other 30%? Yeah, that's fascinating that even after being taught that no matter what you do, that you still go for that. And so he kind of shifted and wrote books about learned optimism. Um, and that's very interesting in itself. But I think what we're looking at is maybe a more learned persistence as if in the training, they learned that their efforts could result in reward, uh, even though they, you know, was, they had, sometimes they messed up or they had to keep at it, um, that maybe that generalized so that they, um, um, with given a new task, and that's what the true test is, that they can persist longer. 
more recently, we've been looking at a different type of cognitive um, ability called pattern discrimination. And mm -hmm. you know, to be informed, you need to be vigilant about your environment and notice, oh, this job's not working out very well, or this stock's not doing well, or my kids are acting out, or noticing when patterns are changing. And that um, has been used as kind of a model for um, you know, not being attentive to the surrounding environment could be important for something like depression. So we, um, we're still in the midst of, of analyzing this, but we noticed that our trained animals, when we gave them a little um, like Lego designs that were different, a certain percent of the blocks had been changed, um, that they were, could notice the more subtle differences um, and that we study by how long they're kind of gazing at it. Uh, if it's new, they'll gaze longer. Um, so being more attentive in the environment because you know you, you need to look at where the Fruit Loop mounds are um, could be important as well. So something like depression is so complex, um, but having an engaged brain that is still changing in response to the environment, not giving up, not resting, you know, and and maladaptive ways, being attentive to things that are happening in the environment, having a sense of confidence that you have some control over the environment to gain resources um, is incredibly, I, I think those are important. And all of that can, can uh, depress chronically high stress hormone levels. If, you, if I want to find a bad guy, um, a common denominator for so many psychiatric illnesses, chronically high stress hormones would probably be way up there. Hmm. We do know that with, we don't know that serotonin is a higher or lower, uh, so to speak, with depression, but in about half of individuals diagnosed with depression, they have high levels of stress hormones. And that is something we can measure, you know, in blood and saliva and humans quite easily. It may be a biomarker that we could start to look at and um, and another reason, going back, I know I'm going all over the place, Shane, but going back to your question <laughs> about um, depression, you know, why is depression getting higher, and the other, bio, uh, the other medical conditions not, we have some good biomarkers of cardiovascular disease and cancer and screenings and such so that we can attack it before it gets bad. We really don't have those biomarkers for depression or schizophrenia. So it's not until someone has a mental break, a depression episode that's very dangerous, maybe even a suicidal attempt or a schizophrenic break uh, attack or episode that we start to treat it. And if we had known years before, then maybe we could have kept that from being, from happening or from being so severe. Um, same with neurological diseases. Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease, by the time someone's diagnosed with Parkinson's, so much of this, the brain structure called the substantia nigra has already degenerated. So that started happening years before. So if we knew it then, then maybe something could be done to buffer that. So we need a better focus on, or just better information about biomarkers so that we can start to address this before you know, if we could only treat people who had cardiovascular disease after a heart attack, we would not be as successful in diminishing the death rates due to cardiovascular disease. In terms of Parkinson's disease, how do we know? So if we know that the 
that it had started many years before. What are the biomarkers that tell us that? As in, do we know what the biomarkers are? Are there tests that we can do? Well, it's, I, think, I think, again, I'm not a neurologist, but I think that most of that has been done with brain imaging so that you start to see the structure diminishing itself. I see. Um, it's, it's actual morphology. Yeah, you, and then okay. you can look even at autopsy of people who might have died from different reasons, but at different stages. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a longer process. And Alzheimer's, too. I mean, to the mm-hmm. So that might happen for years starts, before you... So you see a symptom that is diagnosable. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of room and time that maybe an inter- now I say that we don't have that intervention necessarily now, but if we, unless somebody was going to you know, focus more on behavioral training, cog- there's a lot of brain training um, that may be able, or behavioral cognitive therapy, or different types of training can also build buffers. Um, we're still trying to figure out the efficacy of all that going back to the uh learned helplessness that you, you spoke about I'm, I'm curious about you know what what might be the evolutionary benefit to that you know it, it, it could it be the case that uh you know say i have an injury that will never heal is it a good thing that i just sort of come to accept that and you know, where, where, where does learned helplessness actually come from is it is it a is it some function that's broken or is it you know, how, how should I understand um, where it's coming from? I think from? it's probably a very adaptive function, um, and it may be related. If you look at um, sickness, we've been looking at the immune system with the COVID crisis. When we get sick, kind of regardless of what you have, when there's an immunological threat, our symptoms are very similar. What we're kind of achy, we don't want to get out of the bed, our appetite may be influenced. Um, got kind of these fevers or whatever so we're not you know we're kind of limited in what we're doing in order for our body to heal for our immune system to attack whatever is the threat on board i see the stress response and anxiety as a psychological extension of the immune system so if something's not right with a family member or loved one a work situation or something um you know, maybe you need time to regroup, to consider that, to think about it, to be sad about it, to process it, so that you can figure out what is not working, um, and then figure that out, and then maybe life is better. But just like if we were sick and our immune system's trying its best to work overtime using energy to address an immunological threat, um, it's probably not good for us to be out tra- our ancestors traipsing around, you know, and expending energy, making ourselves more vulnerable. Uh, we need to focus that energy on healing. And so I think it could be very adaptive to have times where you're regrouping, um, mm-hmm. where you're questioning how things are going. Um, mm-hmm. And sadness, we've kind of medicalized sadness, but I think emotions, the whole you know, I like to think of healthy emotions kind of like this quilt. You have all these different patches of different things that make it richer. So sadness can certainly turn into something more pathological. But the learned helplessness where you're not doing the same thing uh, in the sense that it may be kind of like a sadness, uh, a temper, you know, if it's transient and temporary where you're not going to keep trying the same thing that didn't work, um, mm-hmm. that could be beneficial. Now, 
saving resources. Yeah. Uh, so it could be related to that. Um, or it could just be this learning, you know, that you're, it's a limited learning where you've learned that the dogs learn no matter what I can do, what I do, it doesn't work. So it's kind of a limited learning because there's obviously something else when the situation has changed that the animal could do. But if stress is limiting our scope, our pattern, you know, that's a pattern that the dog didn't see. Uh, it's the barriers lower now. I can mm -hmm. probably do this. Let me recalculate. I think the brain, I, my recent book talked about contingency calculations. It's one of the big purpose of the brain to keep calculating contingencies as the environment is changing. So a stressed brain is going to be less likely to be able to do that. Um, but then, but as it's related to kind of sadness and kind of staying within to figure things out, that may be adaptive. So I think there's a, an adaptive and a maladaptive aspect to it. And if it's chronic and it goes on for too long, it's all going to be maladaptive because you're not going to be able to get the resources that you need and, and stress is just going to continue to, um, to expand and, and that's not good. So, so on, the, on the side of neuroplasticity, Plasticity. This is where your uh, research with mice, rats driving cars comes in, right? So you, you've trained rats to drive little miniature cars around <laughs> in search of Fruit Loops. <laughs> and, well, may, maybe you should... So, so you're trying to see uh, whether rats that have... Um, you know, the, the worker rats as opposed to the trust fund rats, which ones do better in, in their driving tasks? Which ones get their licenses first? <laughs> I just lost a lot of credibility when you said little rat cars. And uh, yeah, so, so I, a little bit, no, I, that I, wasn't I've what used I was to it. It's been a fun, that. again, I'm with undergraduate students and just the, the backstory to that is uh, I had a colleague in cognitive science. I came to the University of Richmond about three years ago. So I had new colleagues and she was in cognitive science and she had seen, um, some video of an, a museum that had an aquarium with goldfish in it and, and where the goldfish would swim or school, um, it would move the aquarium. Not that they were consciously aware of that, but it, it was intriguing for her. She's very bright, always thinking about innovative things. And she saw that and she said, Kelly, do you think you could teach a rat to drive a car? And I just, of course, I just laughed at that. Who would, why would I want to do that? I'm this serious researcher looking at these other areas of neuroplasticity. But, um, you know, I thought, well, I'm kind of new here. Let me, let me be a team player. And before I knew it, we were having coffee and talking about these rat cars and designing, you know, how would they activate it and steer? And it just became very fun and engaging for our brains. And it's learning. It's a learning task. And I started to appreciate some of the value of having a complex task and where they're steering, I'm boldly calling it a skill because we could put them anywhere in the arena. So they can't just learn, turn right, left, right, left. They need to kind of figure out where they are and then navigate uh, and, mm -hmm. and turn that. Um, and they can do this. Yeah. I mean, it was totally, uh, she was building the cars. I was the animal Were there person. multiple models of cars? Did you start off with some models that just didn't work? They couldn't control them? What, what was the yeah, so process started like on off, that side? Um, yeah, a couple of things. You know, everything's a learning experience. So at first I thought um, that they would, if she had, if she was going to have a metal plate and they would need to touch, there's no electrical, no subjective, no feeling of this, but if they 
could touch a wire and complete a circuit, it would activate the car. And I thought, well, rats are very um, olfactory dependent and they're always sniffing and smelling. So I think, based on my 30 years of rat expertise, they would touch it, the wire with their nose, and then that would close the, and then they would, and so that wasn't working. Like, darn it. Um, so we started off, the cab of the car was just like a plastic cereal container, and it had a, a lid on it, and we started off without the, the lid. We wanted them, which is painstakingly slow shaping to, here's the fruit loop, and to get in on their own accord and everything. So it's not very restrictive. It's still a big play, uh, kind of area. So one day we just put the lid on there so they couldn't jump out to see and I think it tried to get out and it tried to get out by grabbing the wire and kind of reaching like that and it drove it that way. And then I knew, okay, grasping is going to be a better way for them to activate. Um, so she started to design the car that had this little wire that it would grasp um, and it would do it this way for left and, <laughs> and, and it, it's got so no levers no well then, then when then she was she wanted to try a joystick kind of situation and um so we have some funny footage of they would kind of put their foot on it and just kind of you know pedal to <laughs> pedal to the metal and they just didn't have a lot of control it was too wibbly wob you know wobbly um so that's was out so we went back to the steering because this when we wanted to steer we thought they could you know turn it that way so then we had to go to okay we're just gonna put the wires on the right to steer right and the wires on the left and then she she went on she's working with apple now because <laughs> that was uh, hmm. uh they were they found these fun her other work in cognitive science as well um but i've started to collaborate with a robotics computer scientist kind of person at, um, um, at uh, Randolph-Macon College and John McManus. And so he is, um, we have a dashboard with uh, a, more of a proper little lever that we did kind of like human factors engineering, but rat factors to see, do they want to push in or down or out? And we're trying to look at a conceptual level. Can they learn to turn as easily by just pressing a lever on the left as turning their body to the left because turning your body mm -hmm. to the left is what they would do to turn left and we put a little mini cam inside uh, these uh, so we could look at some of the micro behaviors which i'm mostly looking at the back of their big head uh, with this so getting back to the which animals can do it better uh, in this case and what we published about this the animals that were in the enriched environment and it was, I think, more of a blended natural and artificial. Um, they could learn to do this um, to criterion where they'd have, they drive to a fruit tree, fruit loop tree. <laughs> so, we, you know, so, and um, so they could learn to drive to criterion, but the ones in the standard environments for the time that we gave them couldn't learn to do it for that particular study. So the environment seemed to limit the way they would interact with new things in their environment and the way they could take advantage. Um, there's a, a literature about uh, affordances um, and our experiences influence how we interact with stimuli. Uh, for example, in our culture, we know if something has a, a you know, 
handle, you know, I'm not going to stick my nose. I'm going to pick it up like this. So knowing that I can take better advantage and more, you know, affordances, options for use for that cup <clears throat> and seeing new uses of, of, of stimuli and challenges in the world as well. Um, so we're finding that the enriched animals can learn these complex tasks more efficiently and readily. And more recently, we've started, you know, I'm concerned about research, <clears throat> excuse me, in cages, because even though we know that these enriched, engaged cages or whatever complex cages are probably better for the brain, they're more expensive, they're messy. I don't see huge laboratories having these big, you know, cages with dirt in them and such. So my students and I have tried to come up with a compromise. And so we have a cage called rat lofts. Um, and so they have a, a cage on top and bottom. They're standard size and then a tube connecting them. And because when we go back and try to find out what is the variable, the most important part of an enriched environment that keeps their brains kind of more active or is healthy. Travel, the ability to go from one space to the to another, and mm -hmm. you know, I mentioned that our brains are some level of control to, to move. I mean, like we were talking with the prisoners, knowing mm -hmm. that you know, even prisoners, unless they're in solitary confinement, they can't go from one controlled environment to another. But to not be able to go, to ever leave your environment, how does a how does a brain that wants to process new information, how does it even exist? I, I don't know if mine could. Um, so just to be able to go upstairs and downstairs, and so as we're comparing in our most recent driving study, and this isn't published and we're still working on it, the loft animals do just as well as the enriched animals. So just, and, and we're not putting new stimuli in there, it's just the ability to kind of come and go. Um, and they do get exercise, kind of going up that little thing. It's kind of cute to, uh, to see. So that may be something that's more manageable that labs can go to. It's twice the space instead of six times the space. Um, but I think it's something that is becoming increased. It's gonna be harder to ignore. We need to look at the context of these environments. It's, this sounds like it might be something that becomes quite important for other studies, right? I mean, if you have, if, if you're doing any study on a, on a rat and that rat has been completely constrained for the entirety of its life, how can you draw any conclusions? That was my, that uh, was my point about the limits of psychiatric research that is about the brain when we're using an animal that has a you know, very impressive proper mm -hmm. brain, but we're keeping it in this limited in, environment. Um, one thing I that. wanted to ask about is, um, so you seem to use a lot of Fruit Loops. Have you thought about <laughs> uh, looking for funding from Fruit Loops? I, I mean, the, the reason why I ask is because I imagine when you were first writing the grant to uh, build cars for rats, it, how do you write a grant like that? It, 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 it's, it's a very serious project, of course, but... You, you don't, Shane. You don't. It would never be... I mean... When I was getting into it, I knew that would never be funded. It's too outside of the box. Um, but yet it's, it, it's gotten so much attention. You're right. So isn't that interesting? So my funded research from NI National Institutes of Health with effort-based rewards and such, you know, maybe a few people will look at those publications. Maybe you ran across a few. But when we did this, I, mean, I knew that the that the train, the driving, it had this appeal. So we, we had the videos, 
it would be a wonderful platform to get students and kids, and I've heard from so many interested in behavior and enriched environments and neuroplasticity. So our media uh, public relations department here at the University of Richmond, they have software that keeps track of media attention to faculty um, publications and things that we might write mainstream wise and such. And so it, it caps off at 1500 stories. We beat that. We, 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 we it capped out so it's like more than 1500 media related stories tidbits on these rats which is you know not as serious as all the other stuff that i've done but it's gotten people's attention it's intriguing um and i've tried every chance to i can do it here to say okay this this is the science of the potential that we can learn from it. And it's very rare with rats that we do something that the, the steering part that we published, that wasn't part of the enriched environments. They were in regular cages, but it, it took like nine months and it was hit and miss and they were figuring out what to do. So I'm not aware of maybe any research where they've been training an animal to do something for nine months, uh, a rat. They only live you know, two years in the lab. Um, our driving protocol that we're doing now takes about a month, a month and a half. We're figuring that out better, but still it's, it's a more of a messier, complex cognitive design. So there's, I understand why everybody's not doing this and it's less consistent. You know, it brings out the individual differences. You can't do the same. You have to go, okay, how far did you get yesterday? We're going to start with that. And so it's been a challenge to do this in a way that I'm used to doing research, but we tried and uh, I think we've, I've learned a lot and we're continuing to learn a lot about cognitive complexity and neuroplasticity and problem solving ability in these animals. So it's been- Are fun. you gonna try to continue layering skills on top of, uh, I mean, so far they're, they're steering and moving, are you gonna try to look for how complex their behavior can get or um, are you gonna take this further? In yeah, right now we're, um, we're interested in, um, I want to collaborate with a, a colleague who's looking at neuroplast like what aspect of neuroplasticity is important for this. So there are ways of with some of our genetically engineered animals of suppressing neuroplasticity to see if they can learn it at the same rate. So learning more about the limitations of neuroplasticity and the important role it plays in this type of task could be very informative. So um, so my colleagues and their defense, uh, they've been quite supportive of this innovative little uh, bit of research that we've done. So, um, so I think that we can try to pick apart what is important for learning these complex tasks and maybe not unlike all the technology I've tried to learn during, you know, blended teaching and all this, um, our environments, the context of our brains are important and, and learning new tasks. Now you could be very, um, critical of me after saying, oh, we need to look at all these natural behaviors. And, and then I introduce fruit loops <laughs> and driving cars, but we drive cars and we learn behaviors that our ancestors didn't do. So as long as I put it in that box and that category that these are acquired skills, um, then I think it makes it relevant, but I'm still very interested in looking at authentic behavior, um, being respectful of the behaviors of the species that we're looking at. As I mentioned, we're looking at wild rats now, we're looking at raccoons and trying to track them in their 
in the field and see what they can do and learning more about their nervous systems and the design uh, to learn more about ourselves. So we just need to branch out in a lot of different mm -hmm. ways to learn some of these critical themes about optimal functioning, healthy brains. So it takes you about a month to train up a, a lab rat uh, as opposed, well, I guess the question is, how, how long does it, do they maintain that forever or do they forget after some months or, or is this a skill they have for yeah, life? That's a good question. And, and you know, no, no one else is doing this and we haven't done it. And then I, I will say that we have a group now and because it's kind of a popular area, we try to keep them trained up. But like during the holidays, during the hiatus of the holidays, we're not training, we're just taking care of them. They, it seems to be like riding a bike. They, you know, even with three weeks behind them and maybe they haven't done it, they seem to jump right back in the car and drive. So it seems to be somewhat long-term. I don't know if we stopped and then tried three months later and three months is like a long time for human years if you start converting that if they could remember uh, we did try as part of that published work um, a lot of people have asked kelly do they like it <laughs> do they like driving the car and, okay well that that's a head scratcher how do i test that i can't ask them if they like it uh, so, stop giving them fruit <laughs> right so because we've made the reward, you know, associated with the reward, it's hard to disentangle it. They like Fruit Loops. I can tell you that they'll work to get those. So we started uh, what we call extinction trials between the enriched and the, the two groups we had. And so they would drive, but we didn't give them any Fruit Loops. And, and the ones that were the better drivers and the enriched animals, they kept driving longer. Uh, I don't know if they're more optimistic, that gets us into a different kind of category, but people have looked at optimism in, in rats, uh, or they had a greater sense of control or, uh, or something, but they, they stuck to it a little bit longer. And the idea that they stuck to it without the reward maybe suggests that at least it wasn't negative, um, that there was something positive about it. But the, so you get this cutesy little, uh, protocol. And then as you're suggesting, there's a lot of very complex philosophical, you know, kind of deep questions that you can use to kind of answer these that we haven't been able to with some of the other types of tasks. A question that's perhaps not so deep and philosophical <laughs> is, well, I, I imagine you're doing these tests with both male and female rats. Is that the case? Uh, is there, did you find uh, the stress response or cognitive abilities or you know, do, do boy rats prefer driving cars or <laughs> are they socialized? The girl rats you know, like the dolls. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, what you bring up looking at sex differences and anything related to neuroscience or biomedical sciences is incredibly important. And our National Institutes of Health now, and my research that's funded, I don't have funding for the uh, driving rats. We're just doing that on our own. Um, but everything you propose it should be that you look at males and females. For so long, we only looked at males um, because why? Why is yeah, that? Are they easy to deal with? It's a pain to look at females. I'm a female. I'm looked at mostly males. Now we're looking at males and females. But the female rats have an estrus cycle, like a menstrual cycle, like human females do. Mm -hmm. It's about every four or five days, and so their hormones, the reproductive hormones, and even it has an impact on the brain, the receptors of the brain that receive those hormones that's in flux and it's changing depending on what stage of this estrous cycle 
the rat is in. And so for us to be able to do research with the females, if we're doing a cognitive task or an emotional challenge or something, we have to do the, we have to be like a little rat OBGYN uh, and do vaginal smears, take a sample of the cells and then stain them, look at them to see what stage of estrus she's in. Okay, you've just introduced a lot of time to pick the animal up, take the sample, take it back to the lab, stain it, look under the microscope. And you've also introduced a potential confound. You can't do it exactly that way with a male. We can pick up a male and kind of poke around the anogenital area. Um, so it was easier and more control, we would have said, to just look at the males. But that's unacceptable because the, you know, neurochemical malu. Because at the end of the day, you're going to be giving pharmaceuticals to females. And even with humans, it's still more of a challenge to deal with all the reproductive messiness of females. And then there's the weight differences and such. So we absolutely have to look at males and females. And so we have... What about pregnant females? Sorry, sorry for interrupting you. What about pregnant females? Are they also different when you're... We've done a good bit of research about how the maternal rat brain changes when she's pregnant, when she gives offspring, and when she gives birth, and those offspring in an environment where there are are the required necessary resources, food and not predators and such, those offspring are kind of like an enriched environment for the mom. It's new sounds and smells and tactile stimulation. And the brain changes and her behavior changes in very very different ways. Uh, So yes, not only estrus cycle, but if an animal's pregnant, then that's a whole different category. The uh, hormones are very different. Um, and that's come up with, I keep, I keep mentioning COVID because it's on our brain. You know, it's tested in males and females, but a lot of people are asking, what about if I'm pregnant or lactating? And those weren't part of the original you know, sampling or even kids. So we're at different neurobiological stages, you know, and there are differences. So for our best predictions um, and specificity, we have to look at and control as many variables as we can, but absolutely mm-hmm. males and females. What we have done in looking at all of our cognitive and emotional, you know, we, we certainly haven't seen that you know, males are smarter than females. It's just little subtle things that in this task, maybe the females are a little bit more bold. In this task, maybe the males are a little bit more active. Um, stress responsivity maybe the females are you know more affected by the stress and they're um if we look at depression because the rates in nature are, they have to look after the is that in nature because they have to look after not only themselves but also it, it, uh, it certainly could or? be there could be some evolutionary um determinants of that uh we still with females being twice as likely to suffer from depression than males uh, that's one thing that seeing, you know, with the animals that's conserved that the sex differences, but you're right. Is that true? Yeah. I, di- I didn't yeah. know that. Okay. Um, and looking at sex differences with different uh, psychiatric illnesses, that's another piece of the puzzle, a clue. But I, I think you're, you're right. There may be something about females and childcare and vigilance and being responsive and empathy and sympathy and, and, and being more in tune with offspring and, and their well-being that may contribute um, to this difference in the stress response. That's very adaptive in the short term to taking care of offspring, but maybe not so much in the long term. We know it's not in the long term. Um, so there, you know, females are more than just that, but that, they could have its evolutionary roots related to that. 
Did you find, I don't know if you tested this, but were female mice who had given birth uh, better in the rat, uh, in the car driving tasks? So we haven't that? done the effects of pregnancy in the car driving task, but we have done other like cognitive mazes. And um, yeah, being a mom makes them more efficient learners. We've spent um, years uh, looking at that. Um, their stress response is a little bit more efficient as well. Now the, the female rat is lactating for up to you know, 12 pups in the lab. So they need to be very efficient with their energy expenditure. So being stressed for long periods of time goes against, you know, that's counter. Um, they need to be a little bit more relaxed for the lactation and such. They're also more efficient foragers and that's why they probably are doing better in these learning tasks. The pups are very vulnerable. They're like little pink, hairless, helpless things. So if she's spending hours off the nest finding food to feed this, you know, this energy, heightened energy expenditure that she has, those pups are going to be a snack for a frog or a snake or a cat or something. Mm -hmm. So she needs to be very efficient and fast, get off the nest and get back to protect the offspring. And rats are single mother family models. Um, the dads are just really sperm donors. Um, so you have different family models with different uh, species. So there's a lot on that female rat. So it's just really amazing some of the transformations and adaptations she makes quickly um, to be able to, yeah, to just put so much energy into taking care of these other little smelly animals. And, and that's huge that nature has devised a way for other animals to care for them. And that is probably really important. And, and our, you know, when we look at parent, I think parenting was a huge evolutionary step for social, for nurturing and empathy and sympathy and some of the things that we think are the best about humans and living, uh, caring. Mm. Um, it makes you wonder why female or even male mice aren't always, it sounds like being efficient when it comes to obtaining resources would always be a good thing in terms of energy expenditure. So is the reason why mice aren't always that efficient because they would exhaust the resources in their immediate surroundings or what, what's the yeah, I mean, every, reason every why? situation and you're going to have different cost benefit kind of ratios so a female rat i mean a, a lactating rat high up on the priority list you know she's got this huge genetic investment she needs to keep those pups living so that they can not that she's consciously aware of this but they're going to pass on their genes but if you just had rat, some animals are more reflexive. They're just going to go this shortest distance to get the food and then come back. Um, so that is very efficient. But what happens if that food's no longer there and they haven't explored and they don't have a sense of what's out there in the environment? There's a fun book um, written, kind of a little parable book, 20, 30 years ago, entitled Who Moved My Cheese for business kind of execs about if you just keep going to the same place to get the same rewards, that's great as long as the rewards are there. But you also need to explore. So we have this, this kind of notion of explore versus exploit. And in different times, you're going to need to do both of them. But if you only exploit, 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 we know humans, you're going to exploit all those resources and then you have death. So, so it's a balance. Mm -hmm. And depending on the type of brain you have, an animal and situation and who you're trying to defend, that balance will probably change. And you're more flexible, adaptive, opportunistic animals. And I put a rat, I would say that we're opportunistic 
rats are opportunistic too. They're willing to go wherever we are, eat whatever we eat. Uh, raccoons fall in that category. So the, the animals that can engage in more flexible behavior and are adaptive, you're going to see these change depending on what the needs are at that moment. So a sick animal is not going to do as much exploring. They're going to exploit mm -hmm. to get better. And a lactating animal will too. But when they're healthy, they may look around mm -hmm. more. So I should think of this as a, a different mode rather than, you know, this mouse has a, is a better ability than that one. It's just they're acting to different yeah. stimuli. But the, so the, um, going back to neuroplasticity, I, you know, trying to read, read from, if I want to learn something in my own life, like what should I be doing in my own life? Uh, what, what can I learn from your research? Is, are there some activities I should be doing to improve my own? Yeah, I need to remind myself of this or? as well. So in the animal research, if we can generalize, which to some degree we can, uh, one aspect of neuroplasticity is this kind of neurogenesis, producing new cells and uh, mm -hmm. running, putting rats in a running wheel is the number one way to increase those cells. Uh, so we may not be producing as many as we're in adult and later adult, but um, it also increases this um, this substance called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, BDNF, and it's kind of like a brain fertilizer. And so we see higher levels of this in some of our enriched, engaging models with rats as well. So exercise um, is important. I don't know if you need to run or you can walk quickly. Um, I don't think that just why, like the watching other people travel and exercise on the screen is probably going to do it. But with so much of our brain devoted to movement, um, moving our bodies is incredibly important. We know that stress reduces, chronic stress, as I've been talking about, reduces neuroplasticity. So anything you can do to reduce stress is probably good as well. I've liked to um, maybe something that's just relaxing, but also you can reduce stress by gaining a sense of control. And that's where my research with effort-based rewards. So during the pandemic, you know, people have been talking about baking bread and cooking and doing other hobby. That, I think that's perfect. I think that we could write prescriptions to hobby stores uh, for, for, you know, there's research showing that knitting, you know, releases, you know, that that is effect, uh, related to reduced depression uh, and, Repeated movement can increase serotonin and, and knitting. If it kind of, you're counting the stitches, it's predictable. You're not thinking about your problems, may reduce stress. If you're doing something with a group of individuals, uh, there's another neurochemical called oxytocin that seems to suppress mm -hmm. um, stress hormones um, when you're with people that you identify with and, and have positive experiences with them. So that, that's the examples of how we can keep stress low and engagement higher, changing the neurochemistry and these factors to keep our brains ready to change and so that we're not in some long-term sickness, learned helplessness kind of mode that we can do what we need to do there. And I think it's okay to be sad, you know, especially mm -hmm. we lose a loved one. I have issues with, do we need to take an antidepressant when we're grieving a loved one? Is that depression? Does that protect us against depression? Or do we need to know that this is normal and we're going to work through it? it I'm not making any claims about that, but it makes you think. Uh, and we've redefined when you can prescribe um, due to grieving. But I think that it's healthy to have a full array of emotions. As, but 
when they become chronic and dysfunctional, we need to look at that. So exercise, sense of control, hobbies, being around other people, um, challenging, maybe learning new things, because uh, we learn from the enriched environments is putting new things in there uh, so that we can be, you know, so an instrument or yeah, I mean, a language. And, outside and your beyond zone. 30, you're not too late? I said neuroplasticity the from the age. womb to the tomb. So if you're alive, if you're breathing, you can still learn things. And, and we should be. We need to get out of our comfort zone and not exploit the neural circuits that are engaged and explore there as well. It's just like the animals foraging, you know, this explore versus exploit. Mm. And we can, you know, the, the plasticity of the brain and all those connections that are hopping and, and forming connections we call synapses, trillions, um, numbers I can't even quite, you know, count, uh, these connections um, that can change daily. I mean, just uh, with the, what we were seeing with the, uh, when an animal, the female rat goes into estrus, her connections change, maybe because she's looking for love or out there looking for a mate or something. And then that changes with lactation. Um, so yes, learning new things is gonna force us to use new brain territory. So that's gonna give us more options so that when we're confronted with a new challenge, we have more, we call it a cognitive reserve or a brain reserve. We have more to buffer what may be in our you know, neurological destinies like Alzheimer's disease or something like that. It's not a destiny. I have, um, <laughs> I had, I, there's, so there's some, so what I wanted to do is I wanted to wrap up by asking you uh, three uh, questions that are a little, they're not complete, they're not directly related to your research, but they're sort of in the ballpark. Okay. So I was hoping while okay. I have you here to um, okay. <laughs> take sure. advantage of that. So, so these are a little bit left field. Okay. I apologize. But um, uh, can you die of a broken heart? Can I do what? <laughs> can, can, can someone die of a broken heart? Die of heart? a broken heart. I mean, okay. Um, Emotions and stress um, can be quite debilitating. And um, people who, there's evidence, um, I'm gonna go off base a little bit, but um, <laughs> it's called voodoo death. So people who have thought that a curse had been placed on them, uh, it's been recorded that even though it wasn't and it was a trick or something like that, that, they, that the emotion, thinking that they were going to die uh, kind of shut down some of their autonomic functioning. Um, and so, you know, emotion, so being very, very sad or depressed. Um, one, if, we're, if, you, if you say broken heart, that I assume you mean brain. <laughs> Isn't that funny? I mean, uh, the ancient Greeks used to talk about the heart being, well, the ancient Greeks went from the heart um, Hippocrates to the brain, but we still send Valentine's, we, we celebrate Valentine's Day and say, you know, I love you with all my heart. Well, that's not very impressive because the heart is not experiencing these emotions. It's connected to the brain, but there are emotional circuits and areas in the brain that connect to areas that can activate pain, like dental pain or stepping on a you know, having some injury. And so our psychological perception of pain uh, can be very similar with tissue damage and something being very, very sad. Um, so we experience pain in that way, but also chronic stress related to loss can disrupt 
um, immune functions and cardiovascular. So the stress could disrupt the, the heart um, and, and lead to sickness, illness, and such. Do we have any idea if, imagine you had a magic lever that you could pull and re remove all depression and anxiety from the population. Do you, do you have any sort of idea what sort of impact that would have on other disease? So uh, the incidence of uh, heart, heart failure or, you know, um, do, do we understand what the links are? Yeah, um, the, for a long time in medicine, the immune system was thought to be completely separate from the nervous system. And if you were in medical school, you know, it'd be two different <clears throat> classes and books. But we've known for decades now, there's so much crosstalk between the immune system. So you have immune receptors in the brain and, and uh, neurotransmitter receptors on immune organs and receptors in the body. So there's so much crosstalk. So if we could dismiss or get a handle on chronic stress, then that would probably lead to more healthy outcomes for immune, you know, immunological threats or diseases, cardiovascular disease and such. But I, I wanna make it clear that I'm not saying that we should dismiss stress altogether. That is like our immune system saying something's, you know, it's like I was saying before, something's mm -hmm. wrong. And, you know, I don't know what it would do to our, as, as a species, if we didn't have stress and emotional pain, would we care anything about anyone else? Would we have any charity, charitable kind of notions? Um, so, or would we act to make any changes in our life I know. at all? So, so stress, acute stress is very important for our functioning and to tell us when something is not right. Uh, chronic stress mm -hmm. can lead to dysfunction and chronic disease. And that's what we need to be careful mm -hmm. about. And we're vulnerable to that because of this complex brain that can make so many uh, associations and generate new things to worry about that maybe aren't even reality based. So, so my, my, my second question is, and again, this is, I, in some sense, I apologize for this question because, <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I, I imagine when you're dealing with, um, the various rodents that you're working with, they have different personalities, but at the same time, you know, you, you, you want to see, you know, if I give them this environment, how they're going to act on a general level. So has your research had any impact, uh, with regards to your view of free will? Ah, oh, that is a deep one. Yeah. Well, you can answer yeah. it at the surface level if you want. <laughs> um, I, I think that our brains are sculpted by our experiences. And so to the extent that our experiences bring us to a point, you know, where we can you know, make an informed decision, however you're going to define free will, that through our experiences and the neural networks that we've built and emotional regulation and such, that we can make a decision and then act that way. But I don't think we can do that outside of any influence of, you know, our neural being as well. We, we can't, you know, you can't just take that out of the brain. So some neuroscientists would say, well, no, you know, that, that means that we don't have free will, but we can, we have a, an ability to regulate and to direct. And um, I think with the knowledge that we can do that coupled with the knowledge that we are the product of these experiences 
and that we can still change them, uh, that there's some hint of individualism and sense of control and efficacy that dances around mm -hmm. free will. <laughs> Is that a... <laughs> Yeah, I, I suppose you could describe free will as being sort of an effective construct construction, even if you don't believe in it. Uh, and, you know, even, even if you are completely mechanic, mechanistic about yeah. something, uh, you, you can mechanistic, sorry. Well, um, I guess if, if, so, you, you know, if you look at it as kind of an, um, the individual kind of regulation as an emergent property of all of these 86 billion cells or such that has properties that you can't really identify specifically in any individual cell. Um, yeah, I kind of think that's what a mind is. It's dependent mm -hmm. on these cells, but it emerges and ha takes on some qualitative differences just in the sheer numbers and processing ability of that. So mm -hmm. that, that's a hard one for a neuroscientist to I think well, about it. Though. Well, it, it it, it goes back to the start of our conversation when we were talking about the number of neurons that different species have and, and the qualitative versus, versus quantitative uh, abilities of different animals. So it's not so out of left field. No, no uh, it's the, a good, good question. The, the other thing I wanted to ask you about, are you familiar, I'm, I'm guessing you're familiar with uh, John Calhoun and the, the uh, Universe 25 experiments. Yeah, and, the crowded. Uh, so you know. I... I so in light of your research, I was, well, first of all, we should, may, maybe I could ask you to give a, a brief uh, uh, overview of, of what those experiments were, because it, it's sort of out of my mm -hmm. field. But um, in light of your research, I, I, was, I was wondering what your interpretation of those experiments is. Right. So um, I'm not a strict student and read closely all of John Calhoun's work, but he, um, was working kind of look interested in ecological questions related to um, behavior, working with National Institutes of Health. And uh, I do applaud him. He, he brought, we're talking about animals in limited cages. So he brought them out to what he called a utopia and built these pens in his yard, I think, and then maybe around NIH uh, that he called universe this and that. And, um, and again, he did say that it was a utopia and he just let them keep breeding. Um, and so it became, they became very crowded, these um, pens. Um, and he noticed some, uh, he talked about the behavioral sink, I believe, of just kind of the collapse mm -hmm. of rat society. If we even knew what rat society really was, uh, where they were. They ended up with all of them dying, right? All, all the, in these experiments, they had 100% mortality. Well, I, I guess I'm more familiar with, I don't know that there was a hundred percent. I get you, you've obviously read that. I was thinking more about the, uh, there are more uh, like attacks and then death. I mean, there was mm -hmm. more death. Um, my guess is that somebody, most of the time, there's going to be even some higher ranking animals that are going to, to live, but it almost looked, it looked like pathological behavior. And, and then he uh, translated um, and speculated about humans living in cities and could see, rapes and attacks and not taking care of offspring and such. Um, so my interpretation without knowing the fine details of Calhoun's mm -hmm. work, and I know it got a lot of attention, uh, is that I applaud him looking at behavior outside of a laboratory cage. I think that's important. Um, but I don't see that environment as a rat utopia because there was one important resource that they didn't have and it was space. 
once they crowded, mm -hmm. were so crowded, they didn't have space. Um, and we were just talking about how travel is important. Um, and so it wasn't even really natural um, and a natural, more natural habitat. They would, they have tunnels and they bury under the ground and, um, and they do travel. They mean, I mean, some of the research says like, you know, 20 meters a day, they don't go miles. They could, but they don't, mm -hmm. uh, but they're going different places. So it's not like hundreds live in one big pot or something like that. So my interpretation would be that that's interesting what he did, but I think it was more stress related um, what he was seeing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it, it was just they, they didn't have the resources, the nesting, uh, the space, uh, and it became very, very stress. I would imagine that would have been a very stressful environment. Now, our city stressful environment, I mean, if we're going to talk about cities and we've talked about the city and the natural and the country rats. It's, it's, it's different. Um, you have more resources in cities, but there can be, if there's stress, more stress, then that's not going to be good. And, and going back to where we started with psychiatric illness, there is some research such as with schizophrenia that shows higher rates um, with cases of schizophrenia and more densely populated urban populations. Mm. Um, but that's a very complex question or problem. Um, from an epidemiological point of view, you know, looking at healthcare and um, social connections and resources and safety. So I don't think we could just say, well, living in cities is going to make us pathological or being around people to certain a degree could, but re you know, stripping our resources and being stressed in the midst of the density of population, yeah, that's probably going to be have a lot of negative outcomes. So I, I interpret it more as it being a very stressful environment, what he created mm -hmm. at the end of the day. There, um, mm. The reason why I was curious about asking you uh, was because in your research, you deal with these trust fund and then worker uh, rats. And then, you know, in, in his experiment, the rats had everything in terms of food and water they they had that in in buckets so i was i was wondering if um these rats may have been less resilient to the overcrowding for example yeah i mean you know, i think so was the ut utopia yeah, actually, I mean, that's a, yeah was the utopia uh that's a, a very good in, in, point i mean i don't think it would be different than the laboratory cages where they're given the food and water but <clears throat> you're right the way we think about prosperity as humans um, today, I think it's very different than the way our brains think about prosperity. So he, he did, he gave them all the food and water they wanted. They didn't have the space. They had each other. So, um, they did not, they didn't have to form, have a sense of control about finding things. And if, if there's something to the effort-based reward and self-efficacy, which is hard to say for a rat. But when we think about, and it makes us think about prosperity in our own lives where we think, you know, the more accomplished we are, the more, you know, we can pay somebody to cook our food and to these days shop for us and to build our houses and to make our clothes. And you go just back, you know, a hundred years in this country, you know, the pioneer, they were doing all this stuff. They were planting and canning and they were controlling so much of a part of their lives and their resources that had to enhance their sense of control over the world. And they didn't know everything that was going on everywhere to worry about it. So stress was going to be lower. So 
prosperity today where we want to sit in our fine houses and have everything done for us, that's not probably very good for our brains. And so in that way that he, mm -hmm. he gave them all that they needed in their high rise apartments or whatever, um, that's different. They were walking all over each other. So that's, you know, and the smells and such, but, um, I, I wish we could redefine and rethink and recalculate prosperity in the sense that we never need to give up, uh, the sense of control, even though I know we're living in different times and we, we have to, you know, buy in and use like we're doing now, but not forget that there's value in making that bread or what, whatever hobbies or sense of control, learning new things, exploring new things. That's what brains evolved to do. So if we put it in a nice little package and have everything done for it, is that why we have depression? Is that why depression rates are higher? I would argue it's a factor. Could be other things as well. So if, if you had your dream scenario unfolding in, in the coming decades with regards to mental health and, and depression, what would that look like in terms of treatment uh, from, from what you've learned in your research? Yeah, I, I know it's messy to talk about lifestyle, but I think we need to really explore the neurochemist, the, the neurobiological factors in the context of lifestyle. So as we learn about how hormones change when we're exercising and engaging in this hobby and when we're with, um, to have social, positive social interactions uh, and learning new things, um, that that can be part of a preventative type of, or healthy lifestyle that we're more aware of and sensitive to. So like play, um, we think that maybe we're, we're doing our kids, uh, you know, something, a great service by taking all that rough and tumble playground stuff out of mm -hmm. the classroom. Uh, Cause we want to focus on attention and cognitive and all of this. Um, but play is incredibly important for developing brains with mammals at least. Um, and so there are models in other countries where every 90 minutes kids go out and do this rough and tumble play and, and rats engage in this, it looks like two little kids pinning each other down and pulling their hair or its tail in their case. Um, so if you restrict play from rats, there are negative consequences. We, we haven't even done those studies. We know that you know, children raised in institutions and impoverished conditions, they're not doing well. But we need to look at things like that, play. And, and I wasn't kind of kidding that maybe thought we could expand um, treatments into more behavioral uh, treatments such as hobbies and classes and some of the early psychiatric treatments in this country um, were um, initiated by the Quakers actually but it would be kind of a, a retreat that you would go to and there were classes and you had to get up and you know get dressed and grooming and learning about health um, and very respectable and and the records and data were you know, collected in a different way then, but it was written that more people were able to live, I mean to leave and live an independent life after that. Um, it's less convincing, well, that in contrast to institutions um, decades ago was you know, up to the 1950s is very scary, which was impoverished. Um, so we don't want that, but we don't have evidence of our treatments now, such as pharmaceutical, maybe a drug works 
and you, you don't have, you know, you're not depressed, but you have to keep taking that drug or you're not able to do the things you're not depressed, but you're not able to work in the same way. I, I want to raise the bar to get people back to productive, meaningful lives, not just I'm not having suicidal thoughts anymore. Or I'm not clinically depressed, but I'm, I'm back where I need to be. Um, so I think we've just got, I, I think the lifestyle and looking at a, you know, raising the respect of, I mean, when I say knitting, people go, well, that's just soft science to say that knitting or woodworking, uh, that that has any kind of psychiatric value. But Let's think of all those connections, all the activation of the brain as you're planning a task, you're interacting with others, you're engaging in this task. Um, that's incredibly activating and engaging for a brain, more so than putting a pill out of the context of real life. Now, again, I'm not saying that that pill isn't necessary and certainly don't stop taking them if you are, but we need to expand the way we think and what we can learn about neurochemistry and neuroactivation um, so that we can do things earlier and that we can respect things like play and training and learning and being able to fail. We learn so much from that. So embracing some of these things that, and working, um, cooking, um, some of the things that maybe we've kind of written off as being, uh, we don't need to do that anymore. Or below yeah. us or something. I, I, I talk lines. about the contingency, uh, the um, contingency, conundrum uh, in the sense that our brains, these human brains, they're so innovative and they got us in a situation where we can communicate in different countries via Zoom and, and do all these, um, you know, digital and all this higher level scale computations. But that same brain has created that, you know, we've created the technology to keep us from doing the very things that made our brain so good at doing that. So we're kind of in a, our brains are helping us be yes, as lazy and our, as possible. And helplessness or something. So we, we don't want to be in this downward tailspin where we're kind of too smart for our own selves. We, we need to still be in these uncomfortable problem solving, um, you know, types of situations for our brains to be healthy. It may, maybe it's more fun to just sit and binge on Netflix. We're not stressed, mm -hmm. but uh, we're not doing too much for our neural networks. I don't think. Uh, doing that. So we need to respect that just just as eating right is important for our health, engaging in a certain kind of balance of activities and you know that that's cognitive and behavioral um, is going to be important if we want these brains to last as long as our medical information is allowing our bodies to last. Um, we've, we've got to catch up in that way. So it's it's probably not going to be in a pill and it's not going to be easy. So we have to work at it. But you know, if you pull a muscle, you can't just take painkillers. You got to start working that muscle again, right? It's not hmm. fun. So um, we've, we've kind of created a mess, a conundrum <laughs> that we need to be aware of. Um, but short answer is to embrace and respect uh, the healing power and the health related aspects of many different types of behaviors and endeavors, the way we do other medicinal therapeutic treatments like drugs and surgery and such. So get out and use my hands. Use it or lose it. Use Play it or chess. lose it. Yeah. And the yeah. hands, so much of their brain is connected to the, um, to our brain, our, um, allows our brains, our hands to move in very sophisticated ways. 
uh, in a similar way that the raccoon does is another reason I'm very interested in the, the raccoon. They've got those <laughs> four paws uh, going. So, right, engaging with our hands so that we feel it, you know, that's different than just, I mean, typing is one thing, but it's just not the same as some of the other, you know, the way our ancestors with planting and weaving and hobbies. And um, so we need, we need to kind of get back to some of those maybe basics of our ancestors as we're doing all this, you know, embracing and mm -hmm. benefiting from technology uh, to not forget, mm -hmm. just like we don't forget that we need to eat certain nutrients. Escaped Sapiens.